From O'Melveny and Myers, this is The Cramdown with Nancy Mitchell and John Rapisardi. Welcome to the first episode of The Cramdown, O'Melveny and Myers Restructuring and Bankruptcy Podcast. We are very excited to have the opportunity to share our perspectives on the issues of the moment in restructuring. Today, we're going to be talking about landlord-tenant issues with our partners Steve Warren from our restructuring group and Mike Hamilton from Real Estate. The pandemic has really put landlord-tenant issues on the front burner. Since the beginning of 2020, over 25 retailers and restaurant chains have filed for Chapter 11, more than filed in all of 2019. Many more retailers, restaurants, and consumer-facing businesses are struggling to hang on. So resolution of lease issues is critical. Before we dive in with our guests, John, could you provide some context for the issues we're going to be discussing today? Sure. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, As a bankruptcy practitioner for the last 40 years, I can tell you that in any situation involving landlords and tenants uh, in an economic recession, most of the uh, pressures or the economic pressures are brought to bear upon tenants who are often seeking relief either outside or in a a bankruptcy uh, setting. However, this pandemic crisis is unique in many respects in that everyone uh, is getting crushed economically, both on the landlord and tenant side. Uh, As we are witnessing currently, tenants uh, are experiencing uh, tremendous pressures in terms of uh, their rental expenses being a huge part of their budget. And so they have been seeking concessions from landlords uh, due to the shutdown of their businesses and many respects complete shutdown of businesses uh, that they've been running. Landlords, on the flip side of it, uh, have mortgage obligations. And, and so they don't have free uh, latitude to grant uh, concessions as much as they would like to, uh, to keep uh, tenants in place. In many respects, the economic devastation caused by the pandemic is unparalleled since the bankruptcy code was enacted in 1978 and is even deeper than the economic crisis of 2008. As we've seen since March, there's been a tremendous surge in bankruptcy filings, primarily by retail tenants. And it's no surprise because the bankruptcy code does give relief to tenants in terms of obligations uh, that need to be uh, made uh, outside of bankruptcy. And therefore, the bankruptcy code uh, gives a breathing spell and more flexibility. However, uh, the bankruptcy code does not give uh, the uh, tenants complete unbridled uh, discretion. Uh, The bankruptcy code originally was very debtor-friendly in 1978, but was since amended several times to make it more landlord-friendly and place additional restrictions and constraints upon tenants in uh, the context of bankruptcy filings. We're going to use this time to discuss with Steve Warren and Mike Hamilton from their own uh, perspectives and their practice disciplines how uh, the tenants and landlords have reacted to this crisis in terms of negotiating, uh, exercising leverage, and how they see this crisis playing out both in the negotiating uh, room and in the courtrooms as we move forward. And with that background, Steve and Michael, welcome to the cram down. First question for you guys. You come at these issues from slightly different perspectives. Michael as a real estate lawyer and Steve as a restructuring lawyer. But both of you are dealing with lease issues these days on a regular basis. Could you give us a quick perspective on what your clients are concerned about? It's been crazy. Um, Really, the clients are trying to figure out how to stay in business. It's a triage situation. And the focus really is liquidity. 
um, uh, with lenders placing restrictions and scrutinizing the um, the strength of their borrowers constantly. Uh, borrowers, and particularly anybody with a physical location, whether that's a restaurant, whether that's entertainment, uh, whether whether that's general retail, is figuring out how to husband, how to how to conserve its liquidity. And because one of the major expenses in any business with a physical location is rent, that is focus number one. Uh, how do they get abatements? How do they get deferrals? How do they generate liquidity? And at the beginning, I think when um, really the landlords were a little bit more disorganized, people didn't know what the next step was, it was easier for tenants to just stop paying rent. I think um, abatements or deferrals were likely more available. What we're seeing now is a tightening of that. Um, as landlords get more sophisticated, as they see more um, tape, so to speak, in terms of how this pandemic is going to last, uh, they're getting more aggressive. And so it's harder and harder, particularly out of bankruptcy, uh, for tenants to get the kind of relief uh, that they need. It's really a game to try and stay in business. And as a general rule, not surprisingly, when a business is shut, um, legally unable to open, there's no way that the tenant is going to be able to pay the, pay the rent. So that's just a, uh, a shutdown situation. It's a, a decision to uh, conserve your liquidity and not pay because you're not open. Um, that's really been the game so far. Um, I think more and more, uh, tenants are looking for professional help. Um, they're assessing whether they have the skill set internally to deal with their landlords, to negotiate the types of arrangements that they need to stay in business. Some do, some don't. Uh, I think also what's going on among the tenants is an assessment of their, uh, of their lease portfolios, and that's critical, Nancy. So, Michael, what are you seeing on the real estate side? Yeah, hi, Nancy, and thanks, John, for the introduction. From a real estate perspective, the past six months and the economic crisis we're in, the concern is solely about collecting rents. That issue of rent collection, though, varies by asset class. So, for example, in the uh, real estate arena, in the office sector, rent collections, notwithstanding what we've been facing, have been relatively steady and good, uh, 90 plus percent of the pre-pandemic rents continue to get collected. On a relative basis, that's a good outcome. Industrial is even better. Uh, in the industrial asset class, um, with last mile type real estate, um, the expansion of logistics facilities and the like, industrial demand is very high, uh, even for new space, notwithstanding the pandemic, and collections on rent remain in the 95 plus percent range. Multifamily uh, assets, so apartment communities across the country, in the initial part of the, uh, of the crisis and the pandemic, um, it looked as if uh, there would not be a significant impact uh, in that space. And in fact, in conversations with clients during that time where we were asking the clients whether they wanted to engage with their lenders on some sort of debt relief uh, in light of the pandemic, we were actually discouraged to do that um, because they hadn't actually seen an impact to collections of rent in the apartment space. That has changed. 
uh, over the last couple of months um, as government assistance programs have phased out and the economic impact of the pandemic has uh, truly set in, uh, collections of rent in the multifamily space have deteriorated. And then there's retail. Uh, retail has, has experienced, retail and hospitality have experienced the most dramatic impacts and um, the numbers are alarming. During March to June, um, the average collections across the entire uh, REIT space in the retail sector uh, were in the 30 to 40% range. Clients reported back to us collections in the low 20s and in some cases in the high teens. So they were literally collecting 20% of the rents that they were collecting prior to the pandemic. That obviously is not sustainable. As we've seen uh, with a second phase of shutdowns, that second phase of shutdowns has had yet another impact on retail as well as hospitality. So the primary focus from a real estate perspective has been on rent collections. And although the impacts have been varied across asset classes, suffice it to say that the impact is real. So, Mike, I think those statistics are really interesting because they show that the problems with rents came initially in the sectors that were already troubled pre-pandemic, where you saw retail and then later hospitality take the big hits. Um, but as you mentioned, the other sectors, particularly multifamily, for example, residential, are beginning to see some significant deterioration. And I think for practitioners, it's going to be really important to watch and understand and react to how these issues with landlords and tenants flow throughout the various sectors of our economy as the pandemic continues. Steve, how does the threat of bankruptcy uh, factor into the, this uh, dynamic and does it give tenants uh, any leverage in terms of uh, negotiating uh, modifications of leases pre-bankruptcy? You know, John, that's a great question. Um, there, there used to be a time when just the threat of bankruptcy would get some attention. And you can imagine if you're a landlord and only 1% of your tenants are in a position where they could credibly threaten bankruptcy, you might pay attention to that. Um, that might be enough of a concern that you'd approach them or you'd be willing to be open to changing terms. But the world changed. Now it's not 1% um, that is exposed. It's a much greater percentage as Michael just covered a minute ago. Uh, so um, the landlords, I think, in terms of looking at somebody who's just threatening bankruptcy, it doesn't matter. Everybody's threatening bankruptcy. That's kind of an assumed at this point. So the threat doesn't really work. I think to get traction in terms of what bankruptcy might do, you actually have to be in. Michael, is that your experience in the in the landlord context? Or are they viewing it that way? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, mere threats uh, are not enough. Um, over the years, uh, you know, over the last um, 30 or so years as real estate, commercial real estate has become more Wall Street rather than Main Street, you're dealing with landlords who are much more sophisticated than they may have been uh, in the past. That's not always the case, but with the expansion of REITs uh, and um, the expansion of the CMBS markets and the like, it's a different ballgame than it used to be. Threats of bankruptcy uh, have little effect. And in fact, what 
what we are saying is that data is the true driver of whether a landlord is is uh, taking serious um, as tenant situations. So anytime a, a tenant is going to approach a landlord for relief in this economy or this recession period, uh, it's going to be met with a request by the landlord to the tenant to show us numbers, um, to tell us, for example, in the retail space about how sales are doing, what foot traffic looks like, whether they're open in their space, um, what the overall health of the tenant is. Often these tenants are no longer individual mom and pop tenants, but maybe large national franchises or large national chains. There's even a look through to public companies and public filings to see what's being reported on earning calls and the like. Um, all of those things are taken into consideration before I think you're going to see a response from a landlord to a tenant's request for relief. There is a, there is a general, though, in the, in the landlord space, there's a recognition that I think, I don't think this is universal, but I would say largely there is a recognition that the landlords have to share in the pain here. It can't just be a tenant issue. Um, and that all stakeholders in the economy are going to be impacted by this. And so it's really about coming together, figuring out solutions that work for both sides and, um, you know, making sure that the long-term economic impact is considered as opposed to just the near term. Two additional comments on this. One is we do see some opportunism where certain plants are trying to exploit the situation. That's obviously not being well received. And then one other thing that has happened is, is that if you think about rent as a percentage of the tenant's cost of doing business, that rental percentage uh, has increased significantly. And landlords are well aware that tenants who have costs of occupancy pre-pandemic in the 10 to 15 percent range cannot absorb 20 to 30 percent cost of occupancy. And it's, uh, it's a problem that is being tended to and is is being acknowledged by landlords. So you both mentioned that it doesn't really create leverage until you're in bankruptcy. So what are you seeing in bankruptcy? How much leverage does a tenant have then? Tenant has a lot of leverage in bankruptcy, Nancy. I mean, the power to reject leases um, really changes the entire landscape. Not just the power to reject leases, but the cap on claims. Um, generally, while it's a formula for most leases, most uh, any lease under seven years, it's going to be capped at at basically a year. So um, that that limitation in terms of the claim puts the landlord in a tough position. Um, that's that's really the critical driver. It's the power to reject. Now, there's some other things uh, that have given debtors additional power that they might not otherwise have had, and that includes the um, potentially the ability to stop paying rent. Uh, until recently, that was an unheard of potential power. But as, uh, as we're seeing, at least in some jurisdictions, uh, traction is being gained in terms of deferring rent payments uh, till later or the end of the case, putting a pause in terms of what's going on in the case, including the payment of, of rent. Um, that could really further tip uh, the the uh, balance of power in terms of the in terms of the uh, tenants and how they treat the landlords. Uh, you can imagine a whole range of decisions, a, a selective payment of rent 
Uh, all of these things could, could create kind of a new dynamic. But just the power to assume or reject, um, that, that really is the ultimate power and to reshape the lease portfolio. But Steve, in terms of the amendments to the bankruptcy code, which uh, place time constraints on the, the debtor to make that decision to assume or reject, how is that impacting uh, the process and the debtor's ability to make uh, rational decisions? Well, you know, historically, that's been a, a tremendous problem for, for a retail company or any company that has a lot of, a lot of leases. Because it's not just the time frame, the, the limitation in terms of when they have to assume or reject, but their lenders in terms of putting together the debt and possession financing aren't going to let them run all the way up to the limit. So decisions have to be made even sooner in terms of how the case is going to progress. That was a, a tremendous problem. And it was it really strengthened the hand of landlords for a long time when rents were going up when landlords would want the property back. Um, so, um, but now, now things have changed, right? The, the, the limitation and the time frame to assume or reject can always be waived by the landlord. So uh, the question is whether going forward where rents may be generally coming down, and I think there's an expectation generally in the market uh, that looking forward, rents will be lower five years from now than they are at least in real terms. Um, so landlords may be much more willing to waive that protection when in fact they don't really want the property back. Steve, have you seen a willingness by bankruptcy judges in some of the recent cases to uh, be a little bit more lenient in forcing uh, the timely obligation to pay provision under the bankruptcy code for leases? Uh, John, the answer is yes, although that's not universally the case. Um, what you're pointing to is the obligation to timely pay. And for years and years, there was no confusion as to what timely meant. It meant when the rent came due, um, it would needed to be immediately paid. And if you failed to pay your rent on time, meaning when the lease said you needed to pay it, uh, the landlords would be in front of the judge within days. Uh, and I've, uh, I'll tell you, the, the, uh, in Delaware, in New York, other places, um, that was taken very seriously if you stopped paying or you deferred paying your, your, your rent at all. Um, now, at least in a couple of cases, in one in Virginia and one in New Jersey, uh, Pier 1 and Models, that's gotten some traction. Uh, that it may be possible that timely doesn't really mean now. Uh, maybe it just means uh, at the time when an administrative expense would have to be paid, which is when a plan gets confirmed. And maybe it's enough if you just provide adequate protection that the payment's going to be made in the future. And maybe the judge has the power under Bankruptcy Code Section 105 to issue uh, an injunction or to give relief that's beyond what's specifically in the code. And maybe state law theories like frustration of purpose or impossibility um, have given the, a, an additional gloss to what timely may, may mean. But it is too early to say that this is a trend that's going to be accepted in major jurisdictions to become national. So far, it's in a couple of places. Um, we'll see what happens, but this is a unique time, and bankruptcy judges are sensitive to the fact that they want to rehabilitate debtors. They don't want to close all these businesses down, and when the, the law prevents you uh, 
from operating your restaurant uh, or where the pandemic limits the number of people who can come into your store. Uh, it's understandable that judges are looking for extraordinary relief. The only thing I would add to that is that um, throughout this whole period, once there's a filing, any concepts of, of delay or waivers of extent, you know, the rejection periods and this issue of paying rent or not during the um, during the bankruptcy process. At the same time that all of this is going on, a landlord has a mortgage to pay. And with the uh, expansion of the CMBS markets, the commercial mortgage-backed security markets, the concept of calling your lender and saying, my tenant is not paying, I need some relief on my, my mortgage, that concept has been thrown out the window. There is no one to call in a CMBS context for most cases. And so as a result, whereas we may have been able to have a corresponding relief on mortgage debt at the same time that the tenant's getting relief on its rent, we no longer have that correspondence and it's putting landlords in a, in a major bond. The potential for dueling bankruptcies between the tenant and the landlord, right, Michael? That's right. It puts the landlord in its own solvency situation and there's complications around that uh, in the CMBS space as we know. So Michael, I think the landlord issues are really interesting and bring an interesting perspective Outside of bankruptcy, this pandemic has to have impacted the way that landlords think about their contracts. And Steve mentioned state law provisions such as impossibility, et cetera. How, how do landlords think about that with the pandemic sort of staring them in the face and the potential insolvency issues that you raised? So when the pandemic hit, of course, the first three or four weeks of the pandemic were spent looking at what were the potential implications under leases and was there an intersecting set of implications under state law? And it was mentioned earlier, but one commentator recently noted that the pandemic has brought a lot of uh, foreign languages to the forefront, including the use of French in the term force majeure. <laughs> force majeure is, a, you know, is a contractual right. It is not a statutory um, right or a right implied by law. And so what that means is that if tenants are under the impression that they have some sort of cause beyond their control excuse to the payment of, of rent, they, the only place that they should be looking for that is in the, um, in the lease itself. And what, what they will find, what tenants will find for the most part is, is that the payment of rent is not an item that is listed as one of the items uh, constituting a, an event beyond their reasonable control. And in fact, many leases, if written correctly, will include an express statement that the inability to pay rent in and of itself is not a, a forfeiture event that would give rise to the excused performance. There's a related concept um, called frustration of purpose. And this got some interest in the in the community early on. Um, what this is essentially is is a it's the equivalent of force majeure, but implied by law in, in sort of basic terms. But the essence of it is is that if two parties uh, enter into a contract and each of the parties is informed about the primary purpose of the contract um, and and what it's intended to accomplish. 
if that purpose is later nullified or substantially nullified by events beyond the control of either party, then the court may conclude that the parties are excused from their performance. The issue is that courts have been very reluctant to allow excuse uh, performance based on frustration of purpose claims. And uh, to date, um, we've seen a, a few courts show some sympathy in the pandemic environment, but not much. Uh, and so at the end of the day, uh, if you don't have a contractual right through force majeure, uh, it's probably not wise to hope for or rely on a frustration of purpose excuse to your performance. So we have a couple minutes left. Um, I guess I'd like to give you guys sort of one minute to answer the following questions. Steve, what does a company with significant lease exposure have to be really concerned about in this market? Well, I mean, the company with lease exposure has to be worried about uh, being evicted. <laughs> um, that's that's a, uh, a a top priority. Obviously, you've got to be if you go on your own rent strike, uh, if you're um, uh, attempting to, which you will, if your if your uh, business is closed or a particular location is closed, uh, just keeping an eye to make sure that you don't lose your right to valuable leases. Um, I think other things that you're keeping an eye on is looking at your portfolio um, and deciding which are the absolute keepers in terms of, of locations that you have to have. Those you will pay. Uh, the rest you're going to try and manage to try and, and work through as long as you can and extend your liquidity. But the backdrop, you know, we're talking a lot about the, the landlord um, and the landlord's lender. Of course, the backdrop for the companies are their own lenders and the degree to which those lenders will allow um, increases in liquidity or uh, modify covenants. Um, that's what you're thinking about. Um, and everybody's looking at each other and wondering, OK, is it the, the bank that's going to provide additional liquidity? Um, will the private equity sponsor, in the case of a portfolio company, will it step up? Uh, who is who's going to do that? And and of course, the relationship with the landlords is an important part. They want to see that there's some movement. Uh, they want to understand the impact of not paying rent. Is it just building up more debt um, that needs to be addressed at some point? Um, that's that's one of the concerns, right? If you stop paying rent, you are in effect building up debt. How does that how does that affect the equity holders? All of these things flow through the capital structure, um, and it's it's certainly liquidity driven in terms of how do I stay alive, but there are ultimately a lot of value questions in terms of how do I address the, the debt that's being built up? Um, how do I rationalize my lease portfolio? Um, and there were trends already in retail. This isn't, and, and a number of other businesses uh, that have physical locations that were already driving them to a restructure conclusion. So, Mike, in, in, in wrapping up, based on what Steve just said, what do you expect to see moving forward this fall and into 2021 from your perspective? So, right now, it depends on what asset class you're talking about. Um, retail is going to be a bloodbath, hospitality is the same. In both of those spaces, we're we're starting to see opportunistic buying of corporate debt by 
investors, hedge funds, and the like with an eye to ultimately owning companies. Um, that is, uh, in some cases, welcome, in other cases, not. Um, in the industrial space, we actually expect to see growth um, because the work from home scenario and um, the shift in retail to online, that's going to continue to drive new investments in the industrial space. Um, I would just add a parting comment here that um, the from a landlord's perspective, looking at challenged and distressed tenants, um, that we can look at that with an empathetic eye, understanding that we have to share in the pain, that everyone is going to share in the pain of this particular uh, crisis that we're in, but to not assume that it's a zero-sum game. Um, and what I mean by that is, is to think creatively about how we can achieve solutions for both sides that work beyond the four corners of a document and um, beyond what would typically be conventional thinking about how we um, lease space. Um, the world is changing and the solutions will be unique in this instance. Michael and Steve, thank you so much for your insights today. Um, I could stay and talk to you guys all day, but I imagine somebody at Melbourne has to bill some hours today. One of the things that I took away from this today is that these problems aren't going away and that in order to solve them, it's going to take contributions from tenants, landlords, and their lenders on both sides of the table, um, as well as bankruptcy courts in many cases, courts of equity that can fashion appropriate solutions to get businesses through this. For our listeners, we really appreciate you tuning in today. John and I look forward to seeing you on future episodes of The Cramdown. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cramdown Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York. 10036 telephone 212 326 2000